Hello and welcome to Trees A Crowd. My name is David Oakes and this is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. For those in awe of nature's power, especially when distilled within a single wild flower, this is a podcast where I get to speak to those bipeds who are dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. It is the second half of an interview this week, one with the incredible botanist, Dr. Trevor Dines. So if you haven't heard part one, I would highly recommend heading back to find a lovely bit about Highland cows and a particularly juicy bit about rainforests full of Cameroonian human flesh stripping ants. But for those of you already in the know... Last week, we reached the point where Trevor was just about to explain how a career in British botany trumped that of one flying around rainforests in a dirigible with crazy plant-obsessed Frenchman. I mean, I love a flower, but personally, it's the dirigible Frenchman that would have done it for me. Either way, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is the second and final part of my interview with botanist Dr. Trevor Dines. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh So why did you settle? Why did you stay in Wales? And why did you move to plant life? And why did you decide to commit to Great British and Irish fauna, uh, flora? And... I, I was very, very, very lucky. When I, when I left university, we were actually doing some travelling. And um, as I left the airport, I put in an application to the Botanical Society of the British Isles mm-hmm. for a unique opportunity to study the, the flora of Britain. And the first map had been done of, of Britain, the first atlas of, of British plants had been done back in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was the year 2000, or coming up for the year 2000, uh, we would publish a new atlas that would that would map all plants of Britain and Ireland and look back at that atlas from the 60s and, compare and work the out what of, the change was yeah. and what's driving the change, how much change had there been. Um, so I was the coordinator for that project, getting the field work done, and that's when I... Do you know why they chose you? No, what I no, what I do know. Were you the only person who played? No, no, I wasn't. What I do know is that there was a committee looking after the applications, and a very dear friend of mine called now a very dear friend of mine called Arthur Chater, who's the country recorder for Cardigan, uh, or Cardiganshire. He'd gone. Th- this committee had gone through the list of applicants, and mine had gone to the side, and Arthur put my application back on top, and said we need to consider him. So um, I think. Yeah, that's what made my career, basically. Mm. So I owe a lot to Arthur Chater. <laughs> yes, I haven't seen him for many years. It'd be good to see him again. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yes. So, so that, was a, that was a unique opportunity. And for me then, I then met this amazing network and, and family of recorders in Britain. All of these volunteers that go out and spend all of their time out in the countryside literally looking at the ground looking at the ground and working out what's what and where where it's growing i might get you to explain quickly what the atlas looks like and how by comparing a view of the atlas from the 60s to 2002 was yeah, it yeah 
how comparing the two diagrams is so interesting and useful. Yeah, I think I think for, so. It unlocks the stories of the plants. Basically, if you look at a map from the 1960s, maybe a, you know, uh, an arable plant, prickly poppy, for example, mm-hmm. you know, it's growing throughout the whole of central or on the chalk in central England, uh, central southern England. Compare it to the map today, uh, and you can see that it's disappeared from loads of those areas. So that gives you that change. But that change is telling you a story. Sure. You know, what, what's happened? What's gone on with that that species? Uh, for that one, it's fairly it's fairly obvious. We know what's you know with the intensification of agriculture, uh, when those losses took place, use of herbicides and fertilisers. Um, but other plants are more subtle, and and it takes time to to unlock their stories and work out what's going on. The real power then comes when you put those species together and say right what are all these grassland species doing what are all these northern species doing what are all these plants that like salt doing yeah. and that tells are there you general shifts that, general, yeah, general trends shifts, and that gives you gives you all of that so we were able then to also look at that information and work out which species are most threatened sure so the red data lists and things like that so worked a lot on british red data lists working out what's vulnerable what's critically endangered or, or endangered and, and which ones then you know other species that that deserve our priority for 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 conservation how many people how many volunteers were there collating all the information yeah i mean there were there were and also how what's the time period within which they if you're trying to get a snapshot if you're saying it's the the um uh, atlas of british flora for 2002 yeah does that mean everything has to be recorded in that one year no 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 so that would be impossible to do so there's there's 2,800 10 kilometer squares in britain Mm -hmm. uh and we needed basically an inventory of all of them. All of those, of all of the plant species in them, 4,000 native and introduced plant species. It's quite a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and that's what, that's why these volunteers are so amazing. Uh, so we did, we did an intense period of field work between 1994, no, 1996 and 1999. Uh, so it's that four year period of intense field work. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was coordinating and, and getting all the records in and getting that all collected. Um, and then you produce your, your, your snapshot. That process has just been repeated. So the BSPI are at this very moment. That was my next question. It was like, <laughs> yeah. with climate changing so rapidly, yeah. do yeah. we need to shorten the we time have, between of right. these Absolutely, footprints? absolutely. So at this moment, uh, I know that new accounts are being written of each of these species. Uh, my colleagues are, are, are doing that and, and working out what's what's changed. Now, you know, I would have thought that we wouldn't see too much change. Uh-huh. You know, the, the gap between the last one uh, and, and the talking one before 20 that, years. 20 years in, instead of uh, 40 years but they tell me that the change has been enormous yeah yeah in yeah. a good way it's changed in, enor- <laughs> in a changing way it's in a changing way yeah some again this is, you know, what i said before some species have benefited and some species have, have, have suffered but it's also you know it's also you have to be really careful with interpreting these maps mm-hmm. so we were looking at some one of the maps you know uh, and you think that's a really strange distribution it's centered on certain areas of, of britain and then you realize that the specialists that know how to identify the plants live in that county and that county sure. and they've got a little group of records around them so yeah. interpreting these maps it's not just about the biology it's the it's the sociology as well as the psychology of people we change our opinion of a species taxonomically yeah 
nobody records it anymore, but they start recording something else. So all of these maps can unlock the, these yes, stories. Yes, there's a story behind every map. Yeah. Which, there yeah. are yeah. 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 lies, damn lies, and yeah. statistics. That's right. Absolutely. Where yeah. on that scale yeah. would you yeah. put the Atlas yeah. of British Flora? Right. <laughs> no. No. Okay, it's a more interesting question. Um, whose idea was it in the 60s to do it in the first place? Uh, and why hadn't it been done before? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, th- I think because the resources weren't there. I think... Um, so there's a chap called Franklin Perring uh, and, and Hewitt Cottrell Watson. Was it Watson? Yeah, I think he was around. And, and they, they started looking at the distribution plants on that national scale. So I think it took an evolution of the BSBI to become that national mapping organisation sure. um, for them to say, right, this can be done at scale. Also, there were developments in, in computers, so they could do that computerization now. In fact, they did most of it by punch card, and uh, they didn't have computers available. They had sort of very, you know, we would not call them computers. They were, they were machines, analytical machines that were able to sort out punch cards and things. Sure. So they could go, right, let's extract from this desk full of record cards put in a pin all the way through and you can pull out all of the records of of, of, uh, that, species. of, of that particular species um so yeah they were they were <laughs> and they literally prepared the dot maps by hand where so are those archives now they're down with um uh center for ecology and hydrology at monkswood at okay. ceh so uh, that that's the that's sort of the center of, of all of, of all biological recording in, in britain fantastic organization with, with all of those records stored down there um so yeah they, they that was the first atlas in in the world actually of of, of a flora of a, of a country uh-huh. and uh yeah so it's literally groundbreaking literally groundbreaking and uh yeah but there's you see there's nothing better to stimulate a botanist to go out and do some recording than publish maybe a slightly incomplete map yeah. and they look at it and go oh no I know that species is just down the road yeah. from me just over there uh, so I can add to that so so publishing yeah, if, if these you, maps if you can't really find <laughs> a new species the second best thing is discovering a species that people do know place. about but somewhere yeah, else that's right absolutely yeah do you yeah. think there'll ever be a realignment of the the 10 kilometer squares or do you think that is now set in stone yeah I think that's set in stone and is there there must be a problem with where some of the borders lie it's all set in stone. Okay. So. <laughs> like I, find, I find maps incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you look through the through yeah. the atlas and you can see yeah. see where flowers have mapped out or where new roadways have gone or where rivers are yeah. or yeah. how the temperature shift between the 60s to the yeah. to the noughties has happened. And yeah, it's, right. it's quite astounding. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I le- there's a plant that grows in the hedgerows around here, um, Tamas communis, and it's, um, it's a relative of the sweet potato. It's our uh-huh. only member of the sweet potato family. Oh, okay. You look at the map of that, and it goes north and north and north, and, north. and then it just suddenly stops. You, there's almost a straight line where it stops, and you're thinking, why? You know, there's plenty of lovely habitat further north, yeah. but it's to do with the temperature at which pollination can take place in July. Well, and that just blows my mind that there's a sensitive, such a sensitive element mm-hmm. of a plant's ecology that can limit its distribution, or you know, that's what causes it to grow where, where it grows. And it's those little things that you can unlock in, 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 in a plant's biology that are so interesting. To define everything yeah. about where it is. But also then, you know, our human impact layering on top of that over the generations. So if you go, if you go back far enough, yeah, if you take, there's a lake up in the mountains up here. If you take a, poly, take a, a sample of, of peat from sure. the bottom of that lake, you'll find 8,000 years ago, hemp starts appearing as a as an indicator there's pollen in the pollen record of hemp 8,000 years ago so that's 
people using yeah. hemp. Probably for clothing. Probably for clothing, yeah. probably for rope, probably yeah. for other sources as well. <laughs> but enough of it was grown in this landscape to leave a for significant... the pollen to arrive in an upland mountain lake, settled to the bottom and for us to find it 8,000 years later. Amazing. From the atlas, was that when you then moved to plant life? Yeah, so the, the end... Should we move down to the bottom of the meadow yeah. to talk about that? Yeah, yes. yes. And see if we can find any... a little bit less shade, but if we go right down to the very bottom, there'll be some shade down Great, there. Great, let's do we that. We can go and look for go and look for some butterflies, maybe. See I love enjoying, a butterfly. See what's enjoying this meadow. Okay, so we're now down at the bottom of the meadow. Um, where are we? It's, all, it's the middle of August. <laughs> it's sweltering. In a heat wave. It's a lot drier than <laughs> one might expect. But we still saw some things on the way down. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, this time of year, particularly the knapweed is in flower. Our knapweed flowers really late. Um, I'm ne never quite sure why, but you know, it gives a real. This is where we're really getting a spike of, of nectar at mm -hmm. this time of year, which is great for uh, for bees and and things heading heading into into autumn and winter. So yeah loads of, of nectar but you know, you know we should we should be having devil's bit scabious and things like that growing a little now a little bit but most of the plants when they get stressed like this under these these this dry conditions and this heat they start jettisoning they're going to survival mode and start jettisoning mm -hmm. you know the bits that they don't need which is the flowers and things so a lot of plants will be dying back into their roots or in, into into the rhizomes or things underground and it's just survival mode just just um are you worried uh, it's interesting <laughs> I wouldn't like to say, well, back in 2013, 2012, 2013, I started getting worried about drought mm -hmm. as a driver of change in plant communities. And people talking about climate change and, and the, the temperature changing, but I've always been much more concerned about the impact that drought's going to have on plants because it has a much more quicker impact. Sure. And slightly under the radar, we've had in the last sort of five years... I think it's three really quite hard spring droughts, April, May. It's been very, very dry. And they affect a lot of annuals that have started to grow at sure. that time of year. Um, so in this meadow, I've seen almost extinction of yellow rattle one year and near a little thing called uh, lesser trefoil, which is another winter annual. It's almost completely disappeared because of a couple of spring sure. droughts. So the plants are responding much quicker to this drought situation. You also talk about yellow rattle as being the meadow maker. That's yeah, the, that's without right. that, you don't <clears throat> exactly. have a wildflower meadow. Yeah, exactly. So that, that germinates in the spring and uh, little roots go down and form little hemiparasitic on the species around it, particularly grasses. So it'll tap into their roots with these little things called hostoria. And yes, it's the thief of the meadow, basically. It's stealing nutrients and, and uh, water from, from the plants around it, suppressing the grass. About sort of 40, 60% suppression in, in the, growth of the growth of the grass, and that then gives room for cool. other species other to, to yeah, give, give space in, in, in amongst this thick sward. So without the yellow rattle, you you're sort of almost can't produce a meadow, hence called meadow, meadow maker. Cool. Eyebrights do the same thing as well. Got lots of eyebright in this meadow, which is fantastic. But without that, you know, you're you're struggling to get species to to, to establish. So if you're creating a wildflower meadow, we now say get yellow, yellow rattle in there first and, and get that. First. And hope yeah. there's not a spring drought. I hope there's not a spring drought. <laughs> um, so are you, are you, you moved to plant life in when? Sorry, in two thousand and 
at the very end of 2001. And for those who don't know what Plant Life is, it is? It is a plant conservation charity. So it's, uh, we always sort of describe it as the RSPB of the plant world. So sure. uh, <laughs> yeah, people understand what we mean by that. So yeah, looking after conservation organisation, looking after all of our rare plants, but also the fungi, uh, which aren't plants or mm-hmm. animals, uh, lichens and mosses. Which and are neither words. one species <laughs> or another right. species. Yes, so it's a very... So we, you you know, take everything that nobody else re- wants. Exactly. <laughs> and you try selling you know, a, a, a lichen that basically looks like somebody splodged some porridge on a tree trunk hey, and trying to do a national press release on you, that. Don't you <laughs> condescend the lichen. If I could go back and rechange my career path instead of going to drama school, I'd become a lichen specialist. I think lichen are amazing. One of my one of my good friends, uh, Dave Lammercraft, he's, he, he moved from the RSPB to join plant life and has become a leading expert on on lichens and he can wander up to a tree and see things that I would never ever Mm -hmm. see they are phenomenal he is phenomenal and uh, I think that whole world is just is just tantalizing and and fantastic and yeah like you I would um yeah, mosses are always the things that I, I regret not looking at mosses. When I was a kid, I always said that moss was my best friend. <laughs> yeah, I, love I literally them. did. I had I had moss on my mantelpiece that I used to stroke. I I wasn't a normal childhood, but I certainly didn't join the Wessex Orchid Society. So, but I think we could have been friends in a, another life. So yeah, but what was your first role at Plant Life? The job that was advertised was to set up plant life in Wales okay. uh, and to establish a, a presence in Wales. So the, the organisation was based in London at that time. A small and vibrant group of, of Is of that staff. strange that a plant charity organisation should be set up in the capital city? I think that was a, a factor of the legacy. They, they started off in a small office in the Natural History Museum. Okay. Uh, so then they attracted staff from around the London area. And, and then it, yeah, 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 yeah. But yes, that had certainly been clocked. So at the same time, the Welsh office was set up, colleagues set up the Scottish office as well. So there was an active move sure. out, of the, out of the capital. And indeed now, like based, the base in Scotland, in Scot- well, uh, HQ's down in Salisbury, which is where I'm from originally. Which is where um, I went to school. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, right. I went to okay. Bishop Wordsworth School. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow, fantastic. That's a lovely city, absolutely superb and then we've got offices in in, in wales and scotland and and, and other places around around britain so uh, yeah yeah it's a yeah yeah so i had the task of of establishing a presence in in wales and that was very much a, a focus on species recovery mm-hmm. uh so a suite of species that we were sort of responsible for going out and finding where those species were monitoring them but then crucially and the bit that i really enjoyed was having those conversations with those landowners to you know, what's the management that's needed for these things? So bringing that ecology to life in terms of in terms of management, 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 management. Was Do you our, think was our mantra. local farmers and landowners found it easier to talk, to talk to you because you came from a background of agriculture yeah, and you weren't so. just a, yeah. a spotty yeah. botanist yeah. who likes to go into ridgepoles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that definitely had. Uh, yeah, it definitely helps because yeah, I could talk about agri-environment schemes and, and, and all of those things that, that I'd been brought up with that would apply to that, fertiliser rates and, and you know, livestock units and, and that language of, of, of theirs that, you know, okay, I haven't got experience of running a full-scale farm, sure. but, but you know, certainly got that, got that other side of the fence, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what was nice was so often, you know, if a species was still present on a site... And this is the thing, you know, we made big the conservation plant conservation made a big mistake in the sort of sixties when we started panicking about losing a lot of these plants, and we would literally go in and put a fence around them, sure, to save them, and that was the worst thing that we could ever do. Tells because, everybody where it is. Well, no, it means that that land is no longer managed for that species, so it takes it uh, out of context of the landscape, and you've you've suddenly just turned it into you've destroyed its habitat. Yeah. 
yeah so we started losing plants because of that and one of the my I you know I get a perverse joy out of rocking up to a farmer and this happened on the clean peninsula I remember it distinctly this chap had this this very rare water buttercup growing in his in in, in his in one of his ditches and uh, he said oh somebody came and pointed out that buttercup and um you know I, I now don't drive the tractor through the ditch I said get your tractor now and drive it through the ditch because yeah. that's exactly what it needs you know these plants are growing there because, because of, of, of soil compaction maybe or... yeah or disturbance or, yeah. The, or the right level of grazing carry on doing what you're doing that that's often the message is carry on doing what you're doing rather rather than changing it if the plants are still there then they're there because of a reason yeah. you still want it to, to, to carry on so so it's sort of like almost anti-conservation just carry on with what you're doing it's a very strange way I mean everyone talks about bringing back beavers and putting bison back in Kent or whatever it is like it's it's about retroactively turning things back to uh, a perceived idyll if yeah, you will yeah there's something quite wonderful to hear about an arm of conservation that's about trying to maintain a status quo now look looking after what we've got yeah and not accidentally destroying it by trying to preserve it that's, that's right kind of I, I think i think i think you so for, for me most species if you look at this landscape here most of the species living in this landscape plants love sun Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what plants are all after. Every single one of these things that we're sitting on and under are reaching for the sun. Okay, so where you've got sun hitting the ground, that's where you get most plant diversity. Sure. So these open habitats, open heathland, open grassland, that's where you get most species. So about 700 species grow in these, these open habitats. Now, if we overmanage them, if we over farm them, if we pour loads of uh, agrochemicals on them, they can't yeah, cope with that. So, that so we get about 80 species thriving on intensive farmland but if you then remove that that the management that we're doing if i if i was to take the cows out of this meadow and not leave this meadow alone we would quickly see within two years three years the number of species starting to decline and it'll come down to around 400 species can live in sort of scrub and then eventually in woodland. So as more shading starts coming in, the fewer and fewer species sure. can live there. Now that's not to say that woodland is bad, no. <laughs> but what it's to say is that it's that mixture of, of habitats that we really, really need. And this for me is one of the big problems of, or big challenges of rewilding, is that now people associate that with not doing anything. Sure. So we're polarizing our landscape, quite literally, into very very intensively managed and, and not, not managed, managed at, at all. all and it's called the intermediate disturbance hypothesis yeah. i call it goldilocks ecology what most plants want is something in the middle sure. and that's where our diversity that that's where most of it is but it's also the hardest for us to get right because we're kind of lazy yeah. so we do the easy thing which is manage it really really hard or step away from it and i've given lectures about you know maintaining meadows and bringing you know, I've said to people, you know, we've doubled the number of species in in, the, in this meadow. After four years, we've probably got sort of over four tonnes of carbon stored in the soil in this meadow now. It's fantastic for species. We've got all yeah. these birds and, and, and beetles and butterflies and birds, bees coming back. Oh, but it's not rewilding. You're, that's too much. Yeah. I'm going to leave my meadow. I'm going to not do anything to my meadow. Do you think we have to designate land, therefore, as that's going to be a rewilding exercise, that is going to be a carbon sink, that field's going to be for biodiversity, that one is biodiversity but with a focus upon butterflies, that's biodiversity for beavers. Like, I, Everything is interconnected, obviously, but do you think humankind can be 
perfectly chaotic enough to allow that to happen naturally without us trying to micromanage it. I don't know why we're not allowing ourselves to be More perfectly chaotic. Because <laughs> we are, as a yeah. species, you know. But, but well, no, no, we're not. We, we, we prefer order. We prefer, you know, there's a fence there yeah. that demarcates our land from our neighbour's land. Yeah, we, we like that order. We like that understanding. And I think that's the problem. We fence off our woodlands. The worst thing you can do to a wetland, uh, to a woodland is fence it off. Sure. In the past, in whichever idyll you want to go back to, but mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the sort of 17, 1800s, our woodlands would have been open. They would have been harvested. Coppice has disappeared. On in, 97% Entirely. of coppice has disappeared from, from Britain. You know, one of the most depress- depressing experiences for me is to walk into a, a woodland these days because all you see is a blanket of, of brambles and, and bracken and it's a dark, silent place. Yeah. We've lost that management that opens up those woodlands, makes them vibrant Are we not moving back to that, though? I mean, there were things like in Epping Forest yeah. where we discovered that when coppicing stopped and when grazing yep. stopped that it just became that, a dense we're, we're starting wasteland. To, we're and with bison in Kent as well, the yep. exercise there that, is trying to open that up That's again. where rewilding is, is exciting, is because it's, it's getting back to those processes. It's getting those processes back into the landscape that allow that diversity and that vibrancy to to return but I worry that we've gone too far in that way of rewilding equal do nothing because plants need management you know this is I mentioned it earlier plants are rooted to the spot yeah so that knapweed growing next to you is completely dependent on what you do to it it can't get up and move to the next field Mm -hmm. where conditions are better so you know for plants it's all about management and they need yeah, Heathland as well on a slightly longer scale, but it's the same sort of thing. So I've just been looking at all of the spotted rock rose sites on yeah. Anglesey. Really rare plants, it's county flower of, of Anglesey. Beautiful little thing, drops its petals at, at midday. Lovely little, little little flowers, so you have to survey in the morning, which is <laughs> quite, quite annoying. Um, <laughs> but um, 78% of those sites, uh, 50, just over 50 sites, 78% of them are undergrazed. So we've removed cattle grazing, pony grazing, uh-huh. pony grazing from these heathland sites because we think that's better for these heathland sites, but it's not. We're losing, we are losing the diversity of them. So since the 1980s, we've lost about 30 of, of those 50 uh, spotted rock grow sites. So to make it all about me, um, <laughs> where I grew up was the New Forest, which is yeah. somewhere that is, has always actively been managed well, since 1066 by yeah. livestock, yeah. and also they burn back quite a lot of the, uh, the scrub every yeah. year. Yeah. How do you think about that management of that particular national park? I love that I grew up also in Hampshire, not far from the New Forest, and love it. It's a dynamic open landscape mm-hmm. where management is happening. Sure. So ticking all my boxes for okay. me. Thank you very much. That's New great. Forest, good. I mean, there's going to be there's going to be nuances, obviously, and, and things that are being done too much and, and too little in places. But you know, BSBI did a survey. The Botanical Society of British Isles did a survey of of all the threatened species in in Britain that we thought were declining, and the biggest driver of decline at all of those sites 38 percent way above everything else was under management okay so if there's management happening i'm a happy chap <laughs> so i guess that's why one of the schemes that you introduced at plant life is so successful and everyone likes it because it works upon something that's already managed but also allows wild spaces enough to grow which is no mo may yeah so that was one of your babies yeah can you explain what that is and why it's so brilliant yeah <laughs> it's uh, it's and why my other half should let me do it <laughs> yeah, throughout the entirety should. of the lawn every put your, year put your lawnmower away <laughs> it's a it's a kind of win-win-win for everything carbon wildlife and people because mm-hmm. you can just sit in your garden and with a glass of wine and do nothing you don't you know do nothing do nothing for nature how's sure. that for a little little trap line so 
With the loss of wildflower meadows from our landscape, gardens have become much more important as, 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 as places where our wildlife can live. And there was a lot of talk about how important our, our gardens were. And everybody was talking about you know, having your pile of logs or your bug hotel or your digging your pond, mm-hmm. planting pollinators. I was thinking, well, we've got all these lawns. What, what are we doing with these lawns? And there's some, I think BTO did a survey uh, of wildlife features in our gardens. And lawns were not even included as a wildlife feature, even though on the website they had a picture of a hedgehog foraging on a lawn. Sure. So I thought, OK, look, there's something happening here. We're not recognising how important our lawns are and what are they doing for pollinators. I've become really interested in pollinator networks and, and mm-hmm. different poll- species that are pollinating. So we started looking at lo- and basically asking the questions, what can a lawn do for wildlife? How many flowers do we have on our lawns? You know, what, what's the value of lawns to wildlife? And it turns out, A, that they're amazing in terms of pumping out nectar and, and, and supporting species. So we've got far, over 200 different species of plant grow on our lawns in, in Britain. So they're potentially very, very valuable wildlife sites. Sure. But you know, the problem is that we mow them too often. So everybody's going out every... Once a week. Of, once a week, once a week, once every fortnight if you're, if you're really bad. <laughs> uh, and that pressure to mow is so intense, yeah. you know, that, that pressure to... to we fetishise our lawns. We're absolutely obsessed with... with well, they're associated... I, I, I think it might have been Guy Shrubsole, I can't remember who mm. wrote it, but there was a very interesting article about the history of lawns and how they're associated with wealth and royalty and how they're... Right. It's, it's all about your it's, it's about how manicured it is. And how right. the, you know, what, which direction do your stripes go? Oh, you've gone for stripes, we go for a checkered yeah. effect. Yeah. Or what, yeah. Blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. So I thought, how can we stop people doing any of that yeah. at all and let the flowers grow? Because this was the problem. A lot of these species are growing on these lawns but, but aren't allowed to flower. So how can we manage that feeling of of messiness and wild and, and wildness and letting it go and not doing your job and the answer to that is to either not mow for a short period of time and then mow again so you, you get back control or have this wonderful what we call now mohican uh, sort of haircuts where you have long areas of grass and short areas of grass mm-hmm. but what we found and what we didn't so this is linked to a survey called every flower counts that plant life runs every year uh-huh. what we found is that in fact those short areas of grass are actually really, really important for plants as well. So there's a whole suite of species, red clover, uh, sorry, uh, white clover, self-heal, uh, bird's foot trefoil, that are adapted to growing in short swarts. They are, that's where they prefer to grow. They don't <laughs> grow in this long grass that we're sat in here in the, yeah. in the meadow. And if you mow them about once a month, once every three weeks, once a month, cutting those flowers off actually stimulates more flowers to grow. Okay. And it goes back to the grazing patterns of where these things are, you know, you're basically... Yeah. The if they're in. growing in it, yeah, they've been nibbled <laughs> once every yeah. three weeks. Go, oh, sod it, yeah. I, I can't produce any seeds, I'll grow some more flowers. Yeah. So the, the flower production and the nectar production goes up, which is fantastic for our pollinators. But also those short areas of grass are where they're sort of burrowing bees and other invertebrates. Yeah, that's where the ants are really loving it. They, yeah. they love that short, that short grass. So short grass and long grass is, is, is sort of the answer. And I was sort of trying to think, how do we, how do we get, encourage people to leave their lawns unmown? Uh, for this short period of time and you know, just sort of woke up one morning and no mo may jumped into my head as, a, as an idea sure. and um yeah people just seem to love it so. and on that viewer train um not wanting to skip over the the decades that you spent at plant life but you left plant life a year ago yeah um no mo may aside what do you think your biggest greatest legacy has been from your time there how have you left our our plants? 
I, I would like to think that the thing that gets me out of bed every day and makes me want to do this is to get people to look at plants in a different light and go, even if they're just going, oh, there's a daisy, there's a dandelion. Mm-hmm that has a role to play that that's doing something in our environment or just enjoying it for a moment you know just looking at plants in in a different light that's the thing that's really that that's really driven me so i think through the coronation meadows project and and which your meadow is part of which is this is one that really raised the profile so there's there's uh, 60 I think have been okay. produced now the last one was in was in Green Park in the centre of London sure, sure. so if you go up to uh, Green Park it should be in full flower unless mm-hmm. they've cut it already they, they're actually bringing sheep it's wonderful they bring in From sheep in, into the middle of Green Park yeah. the Royal yeah. Parks do it uh, wonderful site so changing people's attitudes to meadows and the value of meadows I think that that's that's what I'm proudest of do you and no memory and no memory <laughs> do you get a bit of a kick out of the fact that the 20 years give or take that you were with plant life falls almost directly between the last botanical atlas of, <laughs> yes, of British flowers yeah. and the next one. Yeah. So they could look for trends of, of roadways, <laughs> riverways, climate change, but also there's going to be the Trevor Dines <laughs> effect in that 20-year period. And Botanists of the like future that. will look back That's and go, right. something magical something happened. happened in this <laughs> two-decade right. period that we can't quite explain. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I hadn't thought of it like that before. And, you know, it's really difficult to leave an organisation. I was with I Plant Life for 20 years lots of good friends there you know, wonderful colleagues and wonderful times but the time had just come to move on to something new and and to get back if i'm honest to get back to the ground uh-huh. and get back to looking at, at rare plants in detail like i just mentioned this this survey of, of spotted rock growth that i've been doing is is really it's lovely to get back to that and work out what's happening because you know i think so many there's so much talk these days uh-huh. and I'm fed up with talk. <laughs> you know, there are so many books being published and so many opinions online and you know, Twitter has become absolutely vitriolic in terms of a, in terms of, mm-hmm. a, of a debating chamber. So much polarisation. I think you know, a lot of harm has happened in the last five years, even that, that people are talking so much. And yet, you know, you go out to those sites on Anglesey and those species are disappearing yeah. now. They need action. They need they. action now. They, we need to get grazing back onto the ground in a lot of these places. We need more farmers to, you know, I take great comfort from the fact that at Plant Life, when we were setting up Coronation Meadows and other projects since then, farmers have started approaching us and saying, you know, we really want these meadows in. Our, we we realise the benefits of them. We really want them to come back. That's something that for me... You know, taking back to that farming community, which is where I'm from, yeah. taking that message back to them, saying, "Look, you are part of the solution. You know, you are very much in the helm of what happens with our countryside. Let's get on with it and start because we know what to do. We know yeah. what to do with these plants. You know, this is created in in five years. Let's just do it. Let's just do it." <laughs> is is there a mandate or a law protecting this site? No. Like what happens no. when you're gone? No. So there's a 10-year agreement that we had to put in place uh, for you for, to for, keep this meadow going for 10 yeah, years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But that if could not, be broken. Charlie Boy you know, comes around and if, hits you with a stick. Yeah. If I okay. <laughs> it does, yeah. if I died and moved on or whatever, you know, every meadow is at the fate of uh, of, the uh, of the owners. So that's why it's so important to engender within them that desire rather than doing it for other people they have to be doing it for them for themselves and that's why engaging with the farming community talking their language understanding 
the complexity of the farming life yeah. and where this fits into that. Yeah, you need to be here so all year important. round to make sure that yeah. the cattle can come And the there. thing I love most is bringing farmers here and showing them this meadow and getting them to think, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, so, you know, not talking about all of my farm, but, yeah, I'd love to do Just that on, on one of my farms. So, yeah, we had the Highland Cattle Society here and they were so keen on, on that because they can see the benefits for the, for, for, for the, for the cattle. cattle. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. There are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Okay. The first question <laughs> now is... Now nervous. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? That one's easy to answer. I would go to a place called Kumidwal, which is in the Snowdonia Mountains. And it's where all of our amazing Arctic alpine species are, up in the high rocky cliffs of Snowdonia. Uh, there's a gully at the top called the Devil's Kitchen and there's a small waterfall that comes out of that gully and I can spend hours and hours and hours scouring the boulders that have fallen down from that escarpment that are covered in the rarest and most beautiful alpine plants and it's just a, it's like an alpine garden for a naturalist and it's just fantastic. That's not what I would have expected having gone through wildflower meadows to Cameroonian canopies for you to choose an Arctic yeah alpine sorry that's why alpine it's on a different scale you've got these huge boulders they're usually of, a lot smaller yeah, aren't they alpine yeah. plants and that's why you know it's the, I think it's the it's the thrill of finding them uh-huh. in a of, of these tiny plants in a huge landscape and you can just spend hours looking and you see a lichen and you think I haven't seen anything like that before. Uh-huh. Who know what's that one? Who who what's what are you called? <laughs> what's what's your life? And then finding these ultra rare plants and and Welsh poppy lives up there, which is one of my favourite species, and mm-hmm. it lives on the it's just in the river in that cleft right at the very top. And it's just such a it's a big beautiful plant. So on the very cliffs at the back where there are no grazing, you get what are called the hanging gardens, which is where this lush, beautiful vegetation, it's almost woodland like, uh-huh. grows up there. You get early purple orchids and globe flowers and all sorts of things up there. And I think for me it's just a for me it's it, it's well spotting it its best. Okay. And that's that's what appeals to me. Because I love whales. Have you ever discovered a new species? Yeah, I was very, very lucky. So I've got a thing about ferns and horsetails mm-hmm. and was walking again with a colleague of mine, Ian Bonner, who's the who country recorder for Anglesey. And we were walking along the side of a, a, a beach, Tritligui, uh, uh, on the north east coast of Anglesey. And uh, I sort of found this horsetail and, you know, you sort of look at something, you know, you've got the catalogue of, of images yeah. in your head of what, of what all these plants look like. And that one didn't register. I was like, yeah, that's slightly odd. So I then went into a, a sort of three or four weeks of, of detailed analysis under the microscope and worked out that it was a hybrid between common, two exceptionally common horsetails, great horsetail and field horsetail, uh-huh. one of the most common horsetails in, 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 in Britain. And it was the hybrid between them, and it had never been described before formally. So I had the the honour, deep honour, of, of naming that as a as a new species. You named it after a colleague, I think. After the uh, county recorder, for the previous county recorder for Anglesey, Dick yeah. Roberts, who uh, he produced a little booklet of of Anglesey flora with spotted rock rose on the front, and he was an inspirational botanist for for lots of people. So yeah. The second question I ask everyone is: is Who is your natural history hero? Would it be him? Yes, it would. Would it be him because I brought him up just then and let's <laughs> straight into the question? No, no, I was, uh, no, he would because, so for two reasons. Firstly, I remember as a young child 
you know, when Life on Earth came on, on telly and I bought the book and the book, I've still got the book of the series and it's battered and worn out from me looking at it. But that was the inspiration, one of the many inspirations for me to, to, to get into, into, into wildlife. But also I had the deep pleasure of, of not only meeting him, but launching the um, State of, uh, of Britain's uh, wildlife, the um, State of Nature report, uh -huh. a couple of years ago, sharing a stage with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that was, that was just an awesome experience. And he was so, I don't know, gentle in his way and so generous in his appreciation for what we had all done in that room for, for, for uh -huh. British wildlife. He's a remar remarkable man, absolutely remarkable, yeah. How do you think the State of the Nature Report has been received and do you think it's been actioned upon in a good way? Or? I think it was received very well. Yeah. Uh, I think there's an awful problem with British conservation that we talk to each other and not to those other people outside. Sure. So we spend an awful lot of time producing nice reports and then pat ourselves on the back and say, haven't we done a, a good job? And then forget that essential next step, which is to Taking bash government on the head with it yeah. and actually ran at home that you know, this, is, this needs action. <laughs> it always comes back to action. Which is incredibly hard when governments change so yeah, rapidly, exactly, especially at the exactly, moment. Exactly. Uh, let's not go into politics. Nope. Um, <laughs> final question that I ask everybody. If you could bring any species back from extinction, oh. what would it be? Oh, okay. So I would bring back. I've tried to do this. In fact. <laughs> so, I've, well, can I have two? Can yeah, I, you can. Can have I two. please have two? Yeah, sure. So the one I've tried to bring back is the last plant that went officially extinct from Britain, which is a plant called downy hemp nettle, uh -huh. which grew on a farm just outside Bangor, and it used to be on my cycle route in the morning as I went into work, this farm, uh, last seen by a chap called Dick Roberts, who I named the, the mm -hmm. plant after, uh, but it's a beautiful big sort of, it, it's a hemp nettle, uh, so it's got downy, downy leaves, sort of nettle shaped leaves, but these big heads of, of soft down yellow flowers and it's an absolute magnet for bees it was last seen on the farm there 1975 and we thought that seeds might still be present in the soil seed bank so okay. i did lots of experiments trying to bring them back you know digging up samples of soil didn't happen unfortunately but we still live in hope so that would be the one that not only you know I would love to bring it back just to it's see it the there, cast. but we could actually grasp the nettle literally and bring it bring it back. How long does it take before something is deemed extinct? Twenty five years. Okay. So you have to have twenty five years with, with knowing that it's disappeared from its last site sure. before it's deemed to be extinct. So so there are other things on the on yeah, the cards that, could that be about to yeah, go, especially yeah. with the new atlas coming out. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um second. And choice. the the other second choice, if I, I I think I mentioned them earlier, I would love to within my love of, of horsetails and ferns go back to a, a carboniferous rainforest and just see giant towering uh, horsetails and and uh, club mosses and just you know I, I i was nearly a geologist i did geology a level mm -hmm. and just adore geology and just you know i will spend any time on holiday you know not looking at plants and looking at geology instead and uh yeah occasionally i remember on the yorkshire coast you know cracking open a piece of limestone and there's these this this fern frond laid out in front of me you just think that just does something for me so i've so, uh, i've always loved ferns as well and i've always put it down to the new forest because there's so much bracken everywhere mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. i remember just sort of leaping into banks the stuff as a kid and it supported my weight and that kind of thing yeah and the way that it unfurls and oh, curls out there's just nothing quite like it yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. it's almost animal in yeah. its in its yeah. anthropomorphic movement yeah, yeah. 
do you think that because you're also a sort of Hampshire Borcher boy like me, yes, that, maybe. that's why you're yeah. a Fernite? Maybe, maybe. Yeah, but you see, where I grew up on the on the arable farm, there was I don't. I'm trying to think. I don't think there were there were, <laughs> there were some hearts, tongues, ferns in the woodland down there, which were which were nice. But I think coming up to Wales, Wales is a is the mecca for ferns, possibly in the whole of Britain. And uh, you know, I can take you to a wall down the road, and it's got seven different species of fern within seven paces, and it's just uh, I just love looking for these for these ferns. Like you say, there's something there's something ethereal and otherworldly about them. You know, they they don't they don't muck around with these sort of gaudy blooms to attract <laughs> sex and it's just okay you're insulting the the wildflower the meadow the, that you're currently the in. they're all looking at us uh, they outnumber us quite considerably um trevor thank you very much that is amazing fantastic and brilliant it's been a pleasure absolute pleasure thank you And so with that, it brings to a close my time spent with the truly inspirational Trevor Dines. A massive thank you to Trevor for showing me around his meadow and for sitting out in the baking summer sun for as long as we did. Should you be lucky enough to have a garden, I really, really hope that this episode has inspired you to think about trying out No Mow May this year, if you don't already. And if you're not fortunate enough to have your own green space, well... Why not go and find the sheep grazing London's Green Park or head up into the northern Welsh mountains or just pop outside and see what flowers you can find growing upon the crannies and brick walls, etc. Plants really are everywhere. Plants truly are amazing and plants genuinely are our lifeblood. For information on much of what Trevor touched upon in these episodes, head along to treesacrowd.fm where you will find links to Trevor's own website along with a whole smorgasbord of other information and further episodes to listen to. And I am recording this outro in December of 2022. It's not yet Christmas and there's a lot of snow on the ground already, but all going well. I should be bringing you February's episode of Trees of Crowd from beside the aforementioned reintroduced Bison of Kent. But if things don't go to plan, it will probably just be with Chris Packham or someone like that. Anyway, until February. Thank you very much for listening, and bye-bye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.